Bhagavato Rahato Samma Sambhutasa Namotasa Bhagavato Rahato Samma Sambhutasa Namotasa Bhagavato Rahato Samma Sambhutasa Uddang Dhammang Sanghang Namasami wisdom aspect or the wisdom faculties of practice with things to um, to encourage um, to bring to make use of to understand what they are how it works in practical terms in personal terms in terms of what we're doing why we're doing how we're doing and who's doing and so this this faculty can be developed just a very simple level of kind of ordinary ordinary consciousness, ordinary uh, everyday mundane consciousness, or more particular aspects of the path in terms of one's actions or general things like one's lifestyle, why one's doing things, why one's involved with this or that or the other, or in, or in terms of the meditation practice, why we meditate. Why bother? What's it about? What's the aim? Or even in particular functions of meditation, why 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 develop samadhi? Why? What's that about? What does it include? How far does it go? What is it? What's its fruit? How do we bring it about? How do we make use of it? How do we leave it? So just in this alone. Buddha said someone who's fully developed samadhi is someone who knows how to bring it around, how it, how it's entered, how it's mastered, and how to put it down, how to leave it. And the whole thing is understood. So that wisdom really encompasses everything, saturates everything, from the most humble to the to the most. Uh, refined and um, specialized but it's not a it's, it's a faculty that we all have but we tend to not rely upon it not be convinced by it not trust it it's not so it's not doesn't have the same kind of powerful feeling associated with it it's kind of cool and reflective and spacious and sort of flat in a way it's not exciting it's not it's not you know it's not like um, samadhi for example can be very gladdening and exciting in a way special definitely feel we're in it now getting somewhere sila development of sila can make one feel very kind of pure and clear and development of mindfulness and precision, these things are attractive have attractive qualities to them they should always be conjoined, not that they're wrong but they should always be conjoined with the wisdom to 
understand and reflect on it. Wisdom is the chief. One is the thing that encompasses everything. And when it doesn't, then the practice is not balanced. Things go astray. We get obsessive. So that the general aspect of the path, we have the two 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 features or two functions. We can look at it this way: the karmic, uh, which is about um, cultivate doing good actions and getting good results and feeling better because of that. And what we could say the wisdom or the nibbanic aspect, which is the to um, that which doesn't take any of it personally, written very kind of ordinary language, doesn't see it as self. Karma um, operates in terms of, of self. So we begin to understand karma and, and what it feels like, and what good karma feels like, and what bad karma feels like, and what they have in common. We begin to understand what is really meant by self when the Buddha talks about it. And it's not just a kind of, you know, big, you know, blindingly obvious identity experience, but a kind of something that that possesses and feels belonging to and owns experience and is 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 attached to experience, is is judged and measured in terms of experience. When karma is, is heavy and unwholesome, then it's very difficult for it not to be. And this is why the Buddha very much encouraged us to cultivate good karma. When karma is bad, such as stealing, hurting, killing, lying, abusing, then its nature is it, it sticks to us because it has the tendencies to that the, it lacks. It lacks the wisdom faculty. It lacks a sense of it's very blinded. When karma is good. Then it it fights its own goodness. It it also includes the factor of non-delusion. You know, one is actually much clearer about it, see it more fully. The mind feels more peaceful and happy with the good karma. So we're able to kind of witness it more clearly when with bad things, which bring up so much turbulence, agitation, or numbness, or dullness, or insensitivity. That it's very difficult to. Have, a, have an insightful experience of it. But when we see the qualities of, of karma is, is, is that it is um, something that, that is very much identified with. We could say that karma is action on any level that's identified with. Seen as me or mine, measuring myself, in terms of it, having become something because of it. So this, and in this, in this cultivation, then the Buddha even recognizes that you know the most refined kind of calm is, in, or the seat of all karma really is the mind, and the most refined kind of karma for the mind is is uh, karma of, of meditation, of of samadhi. Where we develop very good things, and then we become, we find ourselves in a good state, buoyant, 
vibrant or un- un- unaffected by worry and doubt, not caught up with restlessness or greed, free from ill will. These kind of things. You know, so that sense of life feels good, strong, bright. World changes. You know, the body is no feels kind of warm and radiant experience. So this is very good. But um, one need to have the wisdom aspect to it because tendency then is that because of its magnetic qualities, karma, is that this is all felt and experienced in terms of self. Which isn't, you know, thinking or deliberately holding it. It's just, this is one feels one is this. Um, and the problem with it, of course, is that uh, while it's experienced in such a way, it's not free from the realm, the aspects of, of becoming, which means there's always that need to make more of it, to have it go on longer, to develop it further, to find something with it, or to get away from things with it. Mm. So it has this kind of seed drive within it. Karma has a, has a, karma is a source of rebirth, further becoming. So because this feels good, one wants more of it. If it feels bad, one wants to get away from it. So there's this kind of volitional process that's stimulated through karma because karma's got volition in it. One deliberately intends, one works with something, one gets a result and that deliberate intention then continues to work and wants a next something or a more something. So um, then two results, either one gets something more and therefore we want more or um, one, one doesn't get anything more and one feels one's lost it or we begin to recognize the process of well, you know, there can't be, you know, how do you, how do you get beyond this? How do you get out of this experience? And you feel kind of, you know, sort of, because when you're doing everything good and everything right, and you still feel there's that driving within you to get more or make more, and you know that it's only going to be that whatever you do, it's going to be the same. You start, what's supposed to do? So you, this is, you get suffering, dukkha, is a result of, of karma always has some sort of dukkha in it. So in meditation practice, it's rather like this. It's, uh, it takes us towards the uh, dukkha. And uh, if we've cultivated the wisdom aspects to it, this is where it should do. It takes us to understand dukkha, to understand it not as something extraneous or external that happens, but something very much built into the whole psychology of self, you know, innate within it, and that it can be seen. It can be seen, it can be understood, it can be seen as conditionally arising, dependent upon certain things such as wanting, holding, clinging, becoming, identifying. It can be seen as that. 
And uh, in the teaching of Buddhas, if it can be seen and fully understood, it can be abandoned. Let go of. But um, we don't have to do that. It's not so easy. Because you know, you see this, why can't we go of it? And then we get something that dawns, oh, it's another thing, I'm, another kind of thing I want to do so that I can become something else. And so we feel maybe a sense of despair or you know that everything we do is is tainted with this mark of self that is its own it's innately dukkha but this is this is not really fulfilling or staying with the wisdom aspect we sort of we get a, we use it a little bit but then we don't stay with it use it a little bit just to get an understanding and then we go back to the kind of more like the volitional drive again so we tend to use a wisdom only partially just to inform us where to go and how to go and what to do and then okay now you've got the message and you go off and do and you don't listen anymore you don't take it with you you don't let it drive you don't let it steer So there are different, uh, this is why the part of the practice can be very frustrating because mm-hmm. the wisdom aspect, the wisdom element is not fully cultivated or even under, uh, recognized. wisdom um, activity of, if you like, or the way that wisdom works is it's in Buddha Dharma, the particular use of that term it, 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 it's a kind of way of, of um, it separates things, it kind of sees the different momentary aspects of things, it tends as a way of kind of you know, sort of separating things, seeing things more analysing things Seeing, seeing things instead of being composite, seeing them as individual qualities. So we begin to see, say, the quality of, uh, of uh, virtue. You know, recognize when it's present in the mind and when it's not. When there's well, well wishing in the mind and when there's not. So you actually, you know, when you're cultivating that kind of inner analysis or reflection. And if you get skillful at it, then you can see very much how it's kind of wavering. It's not just kind of one day a good day, next day a bad day, but it's wavering from moment to moment in terms of one's uh, one's benevolence or one's sense of ease or one's uh, well-being or one's irritation or one's grasping. It tends to kind of be fluctuating. And any, you know, we often we maybe only recognise it in its strongest fluctuations when we get a bad mood or we feel suddenly frightened or we feel suddenly relieved and amused. You know, suddenly it kind of, oh yeah, changed. And then suddenly when that different mood comes over, the world seems different for that moment. 
and something just relaxes a little bit or tightens up a little bit. You see how the whole kind of process of consciousness is very much momentary and everything is affected by that. So, you know, you may just have a few bad moments, an unkind remark, and suddenly that whole world seems to be full of it. You see and you feel it everywhere. Or you may be a moment of joy and suddenly the world seems beautiful and bright and positive. Everything seems fine and those problems that were there an hour ago you just laugh at. You know what, it doesn't really matter. Mm. So it's even, you know, one little few moments actually can create a whole world reality to it. So it's important then to actually get in touch with what's happening in moment by moment as best one can. You know, quality of 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 mind. And particularly wisdom both reviews can review this is what we're doing. You know, so if you like uh, fundamental aspect of mindfulness is one of the wisdom faculties. Ability to see, you know, the different qualities of things, objects. So we, we treat a uh, you know, some there's some elements of mindfulness present and we you know, we treat um, um, a rock differently from a flower or you know you handle a teacup delicate teacup differently from a you would a hammer there's no mindfulness you kind of bash everything around or you don't you know you thump around you don't have any kind of sensitivity to recognize well this is a different situation it's a different thing I operate a different way there's no mindfulness one is just totally absorbed in a particular karmic drive or lack of it or you know, or, or a karmic drive that's um, going the other way. That is, we we don't handle things firmly enough. We need to be handled firmly. We don't speak loudly enough when things need to be said loudly. We don't speak softly enough when things need to be so- spoken softly. So you get people mumble all the time or bellow all the time because <laughs> there's not enough. You know, at that moment the, the karma is is that way. So they don't. You know, it tends to be that which hinders mindfulness. And any act of mindfulness, in a way, reflects on calm in terms of the how we're doing things, how things affect us. It's a kind of separative quality. It stands away from the object and recognizes it in 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 relationship. So you have this. Uh, Sati, um, mindfulness, sampajanya, which is a clear comprehension, which often operates in terms of the knowing purpose, aim, what's appropriate. You know, it's a kind of another measuring aspect. It's an aspect of mindfulness. If you like, often seen as conjoined with it. You have what's called manasikara, yosnisor manasikara, which is the right systematic attention which is a wisdom element, in that it's not caught up in a particular drive that may be stimulated by what we're doing or where we are. It's actually, wait a minute, there's this and there's that and there's this, and it goes through it properly. We don't just get blown away by something and, or, you know, and, and be careless. It's kind of, kind of systematic attentiveness. So these all, all these wisdom aspects have the the way in which they are not 
convinced by the object. They're not just drawn into the nature of the object or the nature of the activity. They're able to kind of step, not step back in a kind of aversion, but step back in order to, to fully encompass that and, and, and steer our activity around it. And Panya itself you know, can be used broadly or perhaps most specifically it's used in terms of, if we're looking at these things in different ways, in terms of something that sees things as, as not self, as impermanent and not self. Something that can be seen, something that we're maybe even recognizing our angles and our our aversions or our fascination or our judging or our measurements with noticing that self activity and self as an activity rather than as a real thing self as a particular series of processes and and actions rather than something that we have that we've got to get rid of so even to understand self is enough see what it is, it's not a thing but a, a process and that process can be stepped back from this is clinging this is fascination this is aversion and then you don't have to do that because um, uh, these wisdom aspects are there also to help us um, in what in the, in the measuring the things that we're involved with also if you like just reviewing the practice itself why am I doing this not as a general philosophical question like, well I want to stop suffering or you know, something vague but actually right now what's the is it why am I doing this and perhaps we can well, I'm doing it because it's just Seven thirty. Supposed to do it, you know. Maybe just something we're do, doing habitually, not really full-heartedly, not from a personal position, but just because we're supposed to do it if you're in a monastery. Or it may be, oh, I just want to, just want to switch everything off. I've had enough for the day. Let me sit down, and be quiet, and switch everything off. You know, maybe that, maybe that's the intention, or maybe it's, it flickers. It may be. Well, we like to develop something, get going, you know. We need to brush things up a bit. Maybe that's the intention. So it doesn't, as long as you you gain some clarity about that, about why, why. Maybe that, that may fluctuate from day to day, or from sitting to sitting. But if you know the intent, and you understand that intent is karma, and karma is self, and you watch it very closely. <laughs> and something to keep asking is because if you, if you develop that watchfulness, then the, that that itself steps out. It doesn't negate. It doesn't affirm. It just steps out, and then you've got this this other. Now this is the this other aspect is that which 
it's transcendent in its nature. It doesn't. It tends to step out. It goes in a different direction. So then, you know, what we're doing, okay, let's see how far this goes. Witness the results, see whether it's helpful or unhelpful. Is it something you really want to be part of? You know, that kind of um, detachment is, is something that should always be there. And wisdom also, um, say, looking at the the aspects of practice, how we do it. And you could say there's, there's a kind of a, uh, an arousing or an incitement or an aim or an ambition. You know, there's that kind of feature, isn't there? You know, get up and do it, some kind of, yeah, go for it, weak or, or, or strong. Then there's that which has to establish, you know, you actually get going on something, which generally is a little bit of a kind of a struggle, but you can you, you keep establishing it often do it many times. Is that particular effort or energy to establish? Once it, something is established, you have to, there's a maintaining, that's another aspect. You're actually staying with it, not you know, like the you know Staying with it. It's rather like a chicken, you know. A chicken wanders around, looks at some eggs, and thinks, oh dear, I don't know how these eggs are going to hatch. Looking at them, well, this hasn't actually got the sense of arousal yet, has it? To recognize, hey, do something, you know. (laughs) And then maybe it understands you've got to sit on it. It's, oh, I understand, sit on it. So it sits on it for five minutes and gets up. I've done it. I've done my sitting. Well, it did the establishing, but it didn't really do much maintaining, did it? So, you, you know, you sit on your eggs, and then you wait. And you maintain until they hatch. Mm. So, when in, you, in this process, you're maintaining, and then what? After maintaining there, the next aspect is somehow allowing and, and yielding appreciating, letting something come up, seeing results and enjoying, and then releasing the the effort, the intent, the drive into that experience. So that the very karmic drive which serves us well to a certain point, to the point of establishing and maintaining, then has to be through the results of maintaining, through staying with something, has to be released by witnessing, by you know enjoying some of the the, the experiences, the results that, that come up in practice, so that it no longer becomes necessary to have that same sort of energy, that same sort of intent. Then it can be released. So we can't do it without intent, and yet we can't do it with intent. There's a time for intention and action and deliberation and effort. There's a time for arousal. There's a time for establishment. There's a time for maintaining. And there's a time for relinquishment. And if you keep inciting all the time, you don't relinquish. But if you don't incite, you don't get going. If you keep establishing, then you don't maintain. It's too restless. If you maintain but don't relinquish, it just gets kind of 
static. So one attends one's practice in this way. This is the time to, to arouse, to incite. And then what to be aroused? If the mind is restless, is it proper to arouse a lot of investigation? If it's already kind of too choppy, is it perhaps better to arouse something like this the quality of calm, ease and simplicity? Is it sluggish? This is not the time to be trying to cultivate tranquility. If it's sluggish, you go to sleep. You know, so you see, you know, that, that's so. Just to know this much is is is, is using wisdom. And these things have to be exercised so you know them. You know what it is like to pick yourself up. So you actually, just that, that faculty alone is something we, we try to exercise. It's like getting up in the morning. It's like volunteering for things. It's like feeling, well, I've been here three years, it's about time I learned the chanting. Nudge, nudge. <laughs> <laughs> I've been a vicar for ten years. That's all I learned. Chanting, <laughs> you know, that kind of quality to arouse and incite and get, you know get going on something. Oh, you know, I was a bit of a sort of take. And we get into static, getting too, too sort of, you know, you don't want to be bothered anymore. You don't want to kind of pick something new up. And then it's good to pick up new things. In, in there with a certain appropriateness just as in not because of the thing so just to exercise that quality of mind otherwise we get too too stodgy and then sort of get in this tepid state and it's very in, you know it's kind of can be a bit of a uh, can be well you know what isn't a monastic hindrance but I mean, there's plenty of them but <laughs> this one one notes also the feeling of because then you can call it being quiet and not getting too attached and not getting engaged and not getting involved and keeping tranquil and being more like a hermit and all this kind of stuff. You know, basically it doesn't want to arouse anything. And then we have to understand why. What's the problem? What is the sense of what we're attached to? Can we exercise that thing? You know, so it's not... Con- you know, something we're doing all the time, but something we're prepared to bring around. Picking something up. Chanda, willingness, a love of things. Keenness. For its own sake, this is a faculty. And establishing. Which means that that it's to be properly placed. Carefully placed, that kind of will to do, will to be, will is, has to be care properly placed, suitably placed, so that it's not just kind of slap dash. Mm-hmm. You know how things work. You pick something up and you know 
how to fit it, how to make it work. You pick up the training rules. For example, is a summoner. You're quite keen on it, but then actually finding out how it works. It's not a matter of, of learning, reading a book, or just learning them by heart. It's a matter of knowing how do they fit. When is it? When is it? When does one kind of press this one? When does one uh, reflect on this one? When does one, you know, how? Do, what's the measure of this one? And living in a community is very good for this, knowing the right time and place for things, to do things, to say things, to correct people, to be to receive it, rather than just thinking, well, this is what it should be, this is the way you should be, and then without any recognition of how to establish, um, say, proper conduct in oneself or in others. I haven't... There not anybody who's been able to really practice this this thing in a straight line. Picking up, establishing, maintaining, and and uh, relinquishing a straight line. Like like you know, doesn't work in a kind of way of <coughs> always going on from logically from one step to the next. But we can see this as a general pattern. Having established one then maintains, keeps it going, keeps it polished, doesn't dump it, doesn't get bored with it. Is is loyal to that. Persevered with it. And we think we've understood it, we stay with it, because then maybe we need to just be develop more of that kind of equanimity and coolness to be with something that perhaps isn't new and interesting and purposeful anymore. It's just something we're learning to develop a maintaining quality to. Mm-hmm. So I still you know, I maintain this in morning chanting, evening chanting, all these kind of things. And, you know, I've been and I try to get them as, to, as well as I can, just to keep them in good shape in this body. I try to work with the body so it's in reasonably good condition to support practice. And to develop the kind of attitudes around maintaining, which I get bored with, actually, is the main problem with maintaining something. Particularly when you know it's going to break down sooner or later anyway. <laughs> Why bother? But it's the kind of, just for the mind to maintain. But as I say, it isn't always a straight line to people. Sometimes you just can't, you know, you, have to, you can't really you spend a lot of time trying to get things established. It just doesn't connect very well. Because of karma, because of the karmic way things are. Same with meditation, you know, you, you look at a meditation process and then, you know, getting the idea, like picking it up, getting interested, and then going from the, let's say, uh, you know, watching the breath to developing... Um, the jhana factors, developing piti sukha and developing equanimity, you know, and all these kind of things. But then I haven't known, maybe people have, but nobody I've ever met <laughs> has ever been able to do it like that. Perhaps I mean, some people might, but I haven't met any. The majority of people I know kind of start with this, then 
fall down a bit and get inspired and charge on and then flake out somewhere along the line and cave in, get back to despair, thrash around, do something else for a while and then pick it up again and go surge forward and then plunge off another you know, inspirational high and crash into another pit of despair, feel like they're banding it all together, then pick themselves up somehow and develop something else, then get back to it and it goes on like that. It's kind of process. Because, because the karma and because the wisdom faculty is not used. And the karma is so strong. But then when it goes right, you know, when it seems to be going right, then the problem is that one delights in it. One, one takes it as self. The Buddha, is in the uh, discourse on the fundamentals, said this is the fundamental root of all, all suffering. Is that even one takes anything, this sense of self is conceived around it. Even the notion of I will be enlightened, or I will realize nirvana, or I will attain the deathless, is always seen in terms of self and becoming. And this is the root of it. And the root of it is delight in, or trying to delight in, or finding delight in, or missing the delight in, or feeling delight is no longer present where it was yesterday or last year now it's gone you know? and therefore one feels a loss of faith but it's when it's, it's rather like a, a river when a, you have a river coming down a mountain and then at first it may kind of really run down that mountain charge down and then perhaps when there's a sheer drop it suddenly plunges over the edge and drops 100 feet but the river's not doing well. It's just the, you know, it's the mountain. So the calm, the karmic, the circumstances allowed it to be that way. You know, the rock was this particular way. The gradient was like this. There were no obstacles. Therefore, the, the river tr- trotted along quite merrily as a stream plunged over the end and dropped a hundred really going places. <laughs> they didn't say, "What a good river I am! I'm really doing well." Just, it was just the, and there were no karmic obstacles, or they were few, or there was a lot of karmic drive in it. And then it hits the plane and blonk. <laughs> and it doesn't seem to be charging along anymore. And you've seen a river when they hit off, and they to, you know, they're trying to go to the sea, and they have to swing 100 miles down west. They have to loop another 100 miles off east. They don't seem to get anywhere at all and then they have to kind of sing into a marsh somewhere <laughs> and just just barely keep going. There's <laughs> a marsh. And eventually kind of well they've always seemed to have forgotten about it, eventually kind of limp into the sea at the end of it. This is rather like <laughs> 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 like practice is rather like that. And sometimes you've got to prepare to do a loop to the right for a five years or a loop to the left <laughs> rather than charge straight into the, the oceans of nibbanic bliss <laughs> why is this? because of karma because it's that way you know, the territory's not not even the ground's not even the gradient's not even the force dies out but yet if one knows if one is able to recognise this in terms of anatta in terms of karma and process and one just keeps unflowing <laughs> <laughs> things are flowing even they're just about flowing 
there's still some kind of rippling there we'll get there because it's of the nature of rivers they must go that way even they're just about crawling along they get there in the end but if it's always based upon charging and running and, and being a waterfall and sparkling then it then it uh, dries up we would, we would lose heart So very often one has to review the <coughs> one's Dharma practice quite thoroughly. Is this a time for when one can expect or samadhi? Is this a time? Is this suitable to be practicing anapanasati? Is this a time? Is this suitable to do this? If it is so, in what kind of way should I do it? What are the tendencies I have? Is there a tendency to be faint-hearted? Is there kind of obstacles regarding doubt or sense desire? Then looking at what will actually help to counteract or balance out the karmic obsessions, the karmic pitfalls, the karmic drives, the karmic hindrances that come up. What would be the best way to do it? Would it be through this practice or that practice? And if you don't you know, then and also to to say to look at one's meditation practice in terms of the whole ongoing cultivation of one's life. Do you get clues? Do you get signs from the way you act or the way people see you as to things you might need to learn about that are perhaps affecting your pra- your meditation practice you don't really you haven't really seen. Mm-hmm. So I remember when somebody pointed out that whenever I, I used to, when I was living here in the early days, and we have a couple of sinks upstairs where men all wash and so on. I noticed whenever I wash my face, there was blood on my flannel, and it's because I used to scrub my skin so hard that it would actually tear it. So when I pointed this out, I realised that the faculty of effort was too, too much engaged in my practice. <laughs> I hadn't recognised it before. I didn't take it for granted <laughs> that people wash their face and bleed. <laughs> I never really thought about it before. Nobody else did. Bled. My, my skin always used to crack open. There's something wrong with the skin. So oh, the skin's not good. <laughs> Keep going. <laughs> and somebody suggested that you should kind of dab rather than scour. <laughs> Since I recognise that the quality of effort was too highly um, accented in my practice. And so one learned to, you know, just say, learn to just kind of actually <coughs> deliberately take it, take it a bit easier if that's the, that's the tendency to actually spend more time just enjoying, experiencing the out-breath, if you're doing anapanasati, you know, feeling body tone and tension, feeling the compulsiveness to act, the tendency to overdo, to be working longer hours, to be straining, you know, as a normal thing, just the whole thing. Wait a minute, cultivate, cultivate, cultivate this 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 uh, trend. Work against it. Of course, it's not that 
you can't make some general instruction because not everybody's got it going that way. Then you can actually, this is where it gets very creative because you see, you know, you find ways to learn, develop skillful means that may not be apparently directly related to your meditation practice. So I found uh, some time I had very, uh, one of the early years as, as an abbot here, I had a very difficult period. You know, I just developed more chanting, chanting and, and, and bowing and physical exercises just to, to get out of the, to pull out of the kind of obsessive mind states that came from just having to think too much and carry too much and worry too much and be too involved, too responsible. So it wasn't the time when I felt I could really do a lot of um, meditation in my normal sense of it. Because I'd sit and just kind of get obsessed with all these thoughts about what was happening and need to do and emotions going on, feeling over-responsible and burdened. So I just got to actually just do my do chanting to myself as a feeling of release. And one could be mindful something to establish, something to maintain, something to to learn about, you know, something to experience that energy. It's helpful. Devotional practices I found helpful. Feeling of kind of relinquishment and giving and, and serving to something that was quiet and serene. You know, you bow to a stoop, it doesn't give you any orders. It doesn't care whether you do or not. It doesn't look happy. So it's, it's nice to do something that's, something that's just still and serene. It's that kind of sense of, of offering and attending to. So I found that very helpful in its own way. And yet it was not something that I was just doing because of particular tendencies. Not, you know, I was kind of just, you know, sort of fixated upon these things, but recognizing how to balance out particular mental traits, mental tendencies. And keep checking out you know, the, the roots of the practice, not just the outward forms of it. The roots of the practice, not just where we're going and how we think we're doing. This is all this is very obstructive because how you think you're doing is so often saturated with the self-view that twists and distorts everything and creates further places to go and further things to be and always says where you are is not good enough that's its nature and then it says in fact you've never been good enough (laughs) that's its nature So it, it extends in time, and you never will be good enough. <laughs> Third message of the day. <laughs> it extends in time. So you start to conceive of Nibbana and things like that. If you're very, very careful, you lift the veil of the goddess, and you may very well go mad. 
So it's difficult to seem to be wary of conceiving of goals and ends and, and final places and things like that, just because of what happens when the mind delights, tries to go towards that in a karmic way, the frustration or the delusions that occur, because nibbana is not karma. And the old uh, last summer school I was at, uh, uh, Roshi Miyokioni was telling me about this old Roshi she knew. We were discussing the nature, you know, uh, enlightenment, Nibbana. And she said, oh, you never talk about it in Zen. It's always just somebody asks you about Sartori to say, kick, you know, eat the gruel or sweep the path or, you know, the grass is green or the sky is blue or something like that. Kind of, you avoid it. He's telling this old, old master. I think it was the teacher of her te- of her teacher, who had been a real old stick of a Roshi, you know, and these real old t- tyrant types, hard, hard as nails, kind of. And he's and he's deathbed. He was lying dying on his deathbed, and his disciples around him. And he, he came up with his final words. He propped himself on his elbow and said. You may very well have hated me. <laughs> he may very well have been right. <laughs> but one thing you can never accuse me of, I never stained my mouth with the word Sartori. <laughs> I never, never in 60 years, I never ever talked about enlightenment. Which <laughs> is a kind of ultimate sin to dare to profane and delude people with this concept. So it's always just polish the floor, <laughs> <laughs> sit up straight where you rose, make the gruel. <laughs> and you get down to practicing, you know. Because that's what it is. It's just practicing in a, in a wise way, isn't it, Nibbana? Practicing in a way, fully developing the wisdom faculties around skillful karma. And then, what skillful karma? It can be mindfulness of breathing, it can be mindfulness of all um, But it's not just that, it's, it's the whole thing, isn't it? You decide, you know, what's the base for you? What's now? What's the good one? What's the skillful one? Mm. Check it out. I find myself sometimes just going back to the very simple things, like just feeling one, what a toe feels like, and then a two toes, and then you get to five, and foot, and a leg, and you feel the whole leg, and then the foot, and then one toe, and just really feeling it, and just actually opening up to that simplicity and that kind of patience and that. You know, kind of going nowhere aspect of practice because I have very strong going somewhere drive to get out of suffering. But it doesn't, you don't get out of it like that. You get out of it by understanding suffering, by being willing to understand suffering, by picking it up by establishing yourself upon it, by maintaining the understanding of it. And then when one really has maintained the understanding of it, 
service is an accomplishment. So it's like climbing a mountain, a skilled mountaineer, and they climb a mountain. They, you know, they go up and check their equipment, check their ropes before they go, while they're going. They check their crampons and they check their ice axe and they check the rock as they're climbing up it. They're going to the top, but sometimes they've got to go all the way over to the left to find a good handhold. And they've got to go over to the right to find a good handhold. And then they've got to drop down 10 metres to get around a big crack. And they can go up straight and then they have to bend over. And sometimes they just have to hang there for a night while the storm's blowing and eat chocolate. <laughs> Forced to eat chocolate all night. And sometimes they just say, oh, well, let's go back to base camp and wait till the weather's a bit better. But all of this is called going up the mountain. And this is how one should understand practice. It's all done with wisdom and with that, always that intention to, to be mindful, to cultivate, to understand where we're going, understand where we're going is really dependent on how we're going. And that becomes much more the key once one has got a skill, you know, a basic structure of practice. It's how you do it that becomes really the path rather than the particular thing or the notional aim. So I'll offer this for your reflection. <coughs> Sambhavan Tanna Uvadagata Sadhu Karan Dadhan